All right, my friends, before we open God's Word together, would you bow with me uh, for a word of prayer? Father God, we, uh, we're gathered here to do something extraordinary. To read the words from the Creator and Sustainer of the universe. And Father, we, we don't believe that we're here by accident. We don't believe that the passage of Scripture that we're on today is on accident. Father, we, there, there's nothing more precious to us on this earth than the revelation of the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's nothing more precious in this earth than Your words that are a light to eternal life through Jesus Christ. And Father, we depend on You at this moment to shine a light on these words, to take these words and shoot them like an arrow to hit the targets of our heart. Father, we depend on that. We know that, that I can't do that. We know that we are powerless to do that ourselves. All we can do, Father, is, is ask for Your help to, to bow humbly before Your Word that we may hear from our King. So Father, we ask that You do that for us today. And Father, You are faithful. We know that You will. Father, prepare our hearts. Thank You for salvation by grace through faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, my friends. If you have your Bibles with you, um, we are going to be in the book of Mark. We're heading back to Mark today. Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see a blue one in the pew back in front of you. Go ahead and open that up with us. So you could see that what I'm saying is, is from God's Word. Everything that I say up here, you need to check and double check and triple check with the Word of God. Uh, anything that I'm not saying that's from the Word, you could just throw out. It's, it's worthless. We want to see the Word of God today. Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Uh, okay. Perhaps, um, as we said at the beginning of our time together, is there a more life-giving couple of verses than this? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. Isn't that good news? I talked about this with my daughters last night. Isn't that good news that God doesn't say, you can be saved when you do 47 million good things in your lifetime. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news that God didn't say you can be saved after you do a thousand really good things? Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news that God says your salvation is a gift? It is a free gift of grace, unearned favor with the creator and sustainer of the universe, not by your works, but by faith. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? 
But if you've been in church long enough, you know what we like to do as sinful people and even as sinful Christians is we love those verses, but at the same time, sometimes we're tempted to set them aside and act in such a way or talk in such a way that we elevate other actions to the place of faith. My dad would tell me, my grandma would say this. Now, I'm a little skeptical. Grandma, she taught Sunday school for 55 years, okay? I'm a little skeptical, but dad says that this is what my grandma used to teach him. No cussing, no drinking, no card playing, no dancing, no running around with people who do, and you'll be right with God. Anybody heard that? I don't believe grandma said that. But you can, you can, you can see where that's coming from, right? So we might like the grace through faith part, but at the other side of our mouth, sometimes we might elevate other things and say, no, to be right with God, you need to do this. And it seems like every time an election comes around, we start hearing things like this. True Christians vote Democrat. Or true Christians vote Republican. I've heard that from pastors' mouths in the last few weeks. What happened to we are saved by grace through faith? How about believing X, Y, and Z about the pandemic makes you right with God? You get that feeling? We often like to talk out of both sides of our mouth as believers when it comes to this free gift of salvation. Scripture tells us clearly, Old Testament, New Testament, salvation is a free gift through faith. Yeah, when we come to Jesus, He accepts us as we are through faith, and, and yeah, He'll work on us, and He'll, He'll train us in holiness, but as we are saved, we are saved by grace through faith alone. Pure grace, free gift, not pure action. Pure grace, not pure identity. Pure grace, not pure opinions. We must fight tooth and nail to make this crystal clear in our own hearts. If I don't make this crystal clear in my heart every time I turn around, I am going to be a wreck. We are saved by grace through faith. Grace through faith. Grace through faith. If it wasn't for the grace of God, none of us would be saved. Are you with me? Unmerited favor, unmerited blessing, unmerited, unearned salvation. And what Jesus' ministry on earth, a big portion of what His ministry on earth was about, was about trying to get that understanding in people's minds. Because Jesus was ministering, He was living in an area where grace through faith was way to the sideline. We just, we just came out of Rome. This is amazing. We just came out of the book of Romans. The church in Rome was dealing with this exact thing, weren't they? Jewish Christians thought 
meat. You couldn't eat meat and be a faithful follower. And, and they, they felt they had this urge in them that to be right with God somehow, you couldn't eat meat and all these things. All these things were grouped together. And then what's amazing is then, then we come back to Mark where we've been for several, several months. You know where Mark was when he wrote this? Rome. This passage that we're about to get into, he wrote from Rome. And you know what he's about to say? He's about to show us that Jesus taught it's not about what we eat that makes us right or wrong with God. It's about our heart. Isn't that amazing? He wrote that from the church that's going through all of these issues in the letter to, to the Romans. Are we, a right, are we right with God for any other reason outside of His faith? Is there anything that could come into my life that could shut off the grace of God? Is there anything that I can do or think or say or eat that could turn off God from giving me His grace? Is there anything that could stop the grace of God in the life of believers? The first thing that Mark, Mark's going to give us three scenarios here that all focus on this idea that, that outward things or inward thoughts or our identity can shut off the grace of God for people. He's going to give us three examples of this. Let's read the first part together. This is Mark chapter 7. We're going to read verse 1. We've done this before, but it's important for us to backtrack. Here we go. Verse 1. So big number 7, little number 1 goes like this. Now when the Pharisees gathered to Him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of His disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the Bible? Is that what yours says? No. Holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the Bible? Is that what yours says? No. According to the tradition of the elders. But eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. The Pharisees and the scribes have bought into a religious system that used their own traditions, their own philosophies, and broken biblical understandings to stack their own laws on top of God's laws. You remember this? Stack their own laws on top of God's laws. Instead of emphasizing gr the grace of God, God's salvation is poured out as a free gift by faith. 
Instead of focusing and emphasizing on that, they say, no, 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 no. What you got to do, this is the most important thing for you. You want to be right with God? Here's the most. Set that grace through faith to the side. What you need to do is wash your hands. Now put your Bible down. You're not going to find it in there, but trust me, you must wash your hands. You want the grace of God in your life, wash your hands. We are righteous. The message here from the Pharisees is this. We are righteous before God. We are right with God when we have literally clean hands. And we've talked about this. Before they eat, they said you must ritually wash your hands the appropriate way. When you bake your bread, you must make sure that a fly has not gone into your oven. If you do, you're going to eat that and you'll be defiled, unrighteous before God. These things. These types of actions they claim, these actions are what's going to bring the grace of God on your life. In fact, the tradition of the elders that they're talking about, you'll remember this, says this, the one who lives in Israel and eats with washed hands can be assured of eternal life. Not a thought to a pure heart before God. Not a thought to inherited righteousness by faith. Not a thought to the grace of God given to, to sinners who cry out to God through faith. Not a, not a sentence about that. Wash your hands to receive the grace of God. And so those of us who don't have washed hands, the dirt under our fingernails stops the grace of God. And Jesus calls them out, doesn't He? He says, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. Truly did Isaiah speak of you. Truly did what Jesus said. Truly did I speak of you speaking through Isaiah when I said this. This people who are under the tradition of the elders that say you got to wash your hands properly, get the dirt on your fingernails before God will show you grace. Those people honor me with their lips. My hands clean my oven. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What does God want from us? Not piddly little hoops to jump through. God wants faith in our hearts. Trusting Him for all things, including our salvation. Trusting Him for righteousness to stand before Him. Trusting faith, faith, faith. That's what God wants. Unclean hands, non-religious, ritualistic actions, not doing those rituals, do not cut off the grace of God. My friends, the actions that you perform do not earn you God's grace. The hands that matter aren't your dirty, defiled hands, but the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. 
Are you with me? The actions that matter are not your ritualistic actions trying to earn something from God. Those actions don't matter. The actions that matter is the perfect life of Jesus that ended with the action on the cross. Those are the actions that matter. Are you with me? Those are the actions that bring the grace of God for sinners. The actions of Jesus. Pharisees, you're worried about the wrong hands. You're worried about these hands with with dirt on them. You need to be concerned with the hands of the Savior that were pierced for sinners. Jesus' blood washes our hands clean. Pharisees got one thing right. Our hands are dirty, aren't they? We're sinners. But the Pharisees taught that you could wash the right way and wash those sins away yourself. Jesus teaches, my blood washes your hands clean. And not just your hands, but your body, your soul, and your spirit. Jesus doesn't want you concerned about your outward actions. He doesn't want you to think you're earning something from God. If you do righteous things, and you will as a Christian, if you do righteous things, it's not out of earning something from God. It's out of a love for Him. Motivated by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Not so you can earn something from God. So in faith, we can say with the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Do you want to feel, feel a full assurance of faith? A full assurance that you're right with God? Don't worry as much about these. Look to the hands of Christ. That's how we have full assurance of faith. He says, let us draw near to God with a heart and full assurance with faith, of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water whose whose blood sprinkles our hearts clean. The blood of Jesus. Christians, you are clean before God by grace through faith alone. You are clean before God by grace through faith alone. Give your heart to Jesus by trusting fully in Him. Rest in His righteousness that He has given you credit for. And so no, Pharisees, you got it all wrong. It's not. Don't be worried about these hands. Be thinking about those hands that were nail-pierced. Do not worry about, do not try to wash yourself and be right with God. Let your faith in Jesus, let Him wash you. And now as, as Mark is writing this, in that church and to all Christians, you know, you kind of hope that those poor Jewish Christians that were weighted down by their, by their baggage of eating meat, right? Can't eat meat. Hopefully but they read this and they say, wow, alright, it's not my works that saves me. It's not, it's not my works that, that earn me something from God, eating meat or not eating meat. Wow, it's in Christ so I can eat meat. Awesome. We hope that that's where they're going. But Mark doesn't stop there when we talk about defilement or what can stop us from being right with God. He goes on and gives us another story. Because you might imagine somebody saying, okay, our actions don't make us right or wrong with God. But there's some people from the wrong side of the tracks. You know who I'm talking about. 
there's some people whose DNA doesn't quite match up. What about them? What about our identity? You say our actions can't turn off the spigot of God's grace toward us, that we don't earn anything from God for our actions. What about our identity? You can hear people talking to Mark and going, wait, I'm a Jew and we are the people of God. Doesn't that give me extra credit? No. Pure grace transforms a filthy identity. Let's go the next passage. Let's go Mark chapter 7, verse 24. We're going to meet a woman with a totally filthy identity you ready? Little number 24. It goes like this. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Jesus has been looking to give, give His disciples, give Himself rest for chapters now. It's been a long time since we've been to Mark, but, but you, you remember the crowds are chasing Jesus. And they get in the boat, they go across the, the sea. What happens? The crowd runs to find Him. They go to the other side, they go to the mountains, they go to the wilderness, whatever. The crowds find Him. And so Jesus takes, He says, okay, fine. We're, if we can't find rest in Israel, we're going out of the country. And so they come to Tyre, totally Gentile area. Famously Gentile area. If you know your Old Testament, Jezebel is known for being with Tyre. Okay, that's the type of people that come to Tyre. Total pagans, totally uh, un, unsaved, totally defiled area of the world. And you can imagine that, that the disciples are probably getting really uncomfortable. Following Jesus sometimes is uncomfortable, isn't it? Am I the only one? Following Jesus sometimes is uncomfortable because Jesus takes us places that we might not want to go. So Jesus has 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 shattered the religious system that the disciples have been under their entire lives. No, it's not what you eat. It's not what you do that brings the grace of God. It is faith and faith alone. Wow, okay, that's new. And then Jesus takes them from Israel towards the Gentiles. What are we doing, Jesus? God's people are this way. You're the Messiah. You're supposed to go that way. Jesus goes to Tyre. A famously non-Jewish, non-God-fearing, famously defiled area of the world. Tyre is the source of Canaanite religion. It is the source of Baal worship. You'll remember Baal. Baal was the false god in the Old Testament that Israel kept worshiping and God would have to pull them back. This was the center of that false religion. It's also an area filled, as you can imagine, with Gentile Greek citizens and cultures. And so Jesus takes 
His disciples are probably feeling a little weary, a little wary about coming into this area. And they find a place, finally, maybe we can sit and rest. But no, they can't. Jesus' fame has spread everywhere. And so a crowd comes, whoop, comes to Jesus. And as they're trying to get rest, we have this image in our mind and Matthew's account plays into us, gives us a little more details of who this woman was. But the picture is they're coming and they're resting and Jesus is alone by Himself trying to rest. And all of a sudden out the window we hear this. Constantly this. Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David! My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon! That's what Matthew says. Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And she doesn't just say this once. She doesn't just knock politely on the door. Matthew seems to tell us that she kept screaming this and screaming this and screaming this. That is so much so that the disciples came and begged Jesus saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. Have mercy on me. Show me grace O oh, Son of David, Lord, show me mercy. Can you feel the cry of her heart there, parents? My daughter has a demon. An unclean spirit. Unclean spirit is a little bit of a different phrase for a demon, probably meaning this unclean spirit, this demon, was making her do unclean things. And we're left to imagine what that is, but things that would ritually defile her, even to pagans. And then chapter 9 will give us an idea of what demon-possessed children do. Demons will possess this child. And in chapter 9 it says that, it says that demons will, will throw the child into fire or will throw the child into water. Children foam at the mouth. So you can imagine what this woman is feeling and what this woman is doing. She's begging Jesus to heal her daughter. Have mercy on me! Show me grace! Show me grace! Heal my daughter! Heal my daughter! Heal my daughter! Now the Jews would assume any holy teacher, especially one as popular and powerful as Jesus, would reject her outright. Why? They would assume that Jesus would not show her grace, would not show her compassion because her identity was totally defiled. She is not from the right people. She does not have the right DNA. No people like her receive the grace of God. Number one, she was a woman. It's a bad first step in this context. Not only that, she was a woman acting in such a way, pursuing this teacher that would be scandalous. Think about who's walking down the street and sees this woman calling out to Jesus, Jesus, come, I'm begging you, help me, please. What does that look like? Not only was she a woman, who in that time would be a second-class citizen, not only she was a woman, but she was a Gentile. And not just a Gentile, but a Phoenician what would the Pharisees from the last passage say about that? Well, Pharisees would say, well, our tradition teaches that 
She can't receive the grace of God because Gentiles are under the curse of God. And that Jews alone receive the grace of God. We see this in the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah. You know the story of Jonah. God comes and tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, this pagan, nasty city that just hated Israel. Israel hated them. Jonah, go tell them that I'm going to destroy them. That's all God says. And then Jonah doesn't go there. He goes all the way to the other side. And then in the end of Jonah, we find out why. Why didn't Jonah go deliver this message to Nineveh? Why did he fight God? Why did he run from God? Jonah says this. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not why I've said uh, when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Even in the book of Jonah, we see Jewish people say, wait, the grace of God is not for them. Jonah runs, gets thrown off a ship, gets swallowed by a big fish. All these things happen to Jonah because he didn't want the grace of God going to someone he didn't think deserves it. And that's this woman. Not only was she a woman, a Gentile, a Phoenician, she was a Canaanite. Matthew tells us that she comes from a Canaanite background. She had up to this point in her life, she had trusted in and worshipped the false gods of the Canaanite religion. And the Canaanite religion was the most abhorrent in all the ancient Near East. All the nations around Israel, this was the worst religion. It was the most sexually depraved of any in the ancient world. The Canaanites were the most despised of Israel's enemies in the Old Testament. Canaanites worshipped gods like Moloch, where Moloch's statue had his hands outstretched and you would put your firstborn infant on his hands and light a fire underneath so that you could earn favor with that God. No one like this can possibly receive the grace of God. Her identity is totally defiled. So we can imagine that Jesus and the readers of this, especially Jewish readers, and in Matthew, Matthew was written to a Jewish congregation, Jewish, Jewish uh, crowd. And so we can imagine them reading this and going, wow, how's Jesus going to respond? And so Jesus comes, and, and what he does is he, he lets a parable play out before the disciples. And Jesus tells her this, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's Jesus saying. Jesus saying, I'm, I'm here first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. And the disciples would be like, yeah, that's right. The disciples would say, well, I'm not crazy about you saying first because that kind of indicates that you're sick and you're going to go to the Gentiles. But yeah, get her, Jesus. Get her. People of God. Israel was the people of God. It was, it was the, they were the missionaries for the world. Their light of the Gospel would be go, supposed to be going out to the Gentiles so that all nations would praise God. It didn't work out. They were not living up to their side of the deal. But it was always when the Messiah was coming, He's first going to go to Israel. Romans 1.16 tells us that. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, to the Gentiles. Throw it to the dogs 
It's not as derogatory as it sounds. Jesus is saying, look, the people of Israel are sitting around this table and the Messiah comes to feed the people of Israel first, not the little household dogs that are under the table. We'll get to them, but first it's for Israel. The people that have taken out of Egypt, the people who have promised the Messiah to are going to receive this grace, this mercy, this faith, this message of salvation first. And she says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Mark 7, 28. What a brilliant answer. You can imagine me, I'll be bristling up. What would you call me? Fine. I'm out of here. You're bristling up. You can see me arguing. You can see me, my daughter is possessed. You could see me grabbing Jesus by his collar and saying, you've got to do this. You could see me doing that, but she doesn't do that. She reveals humility. She doesn't say, I'm no dog. She says, yes, Lord, but can I have a crumb? Isn't that amazing? And we see what a crumb from Jesus gives. A crumb from Jesus is, gives us eternal life. I mean, what, we don't need more than a crumb. Please, can I have just a crumb? She reveals, this, is a, this has been a dynamic in play throughout all of Mark, right? People are coming to Jesus just to see the show. People are coming to Jesus just to, to, to get something from him. But no, she reveals that she has faith in Jesus' power, yes, but also his goodness. Please, Lord, in your goodness, give, give me the grace of a crumb. She submits to Jesus' mission. Listen, you're the Lord, you're the King. You're the Messiah. If you say first Israel, then that's, fi- that, that's fine. But please just give me, out of your grace, one crumb. In Matthew, you remember us reading Matthew a moment ago. Matthew says she even called on Jesus' mercy, which means, Jesus, I know I don't deserve this. I know I have, I have sinned and I don't deserve your grace, but please, in your mercy, give me a crumb. That shows she recognizes she's a sinner and she needs the grace of God. And in Matthew, she even calls Jesus, what if, how about a pagan saying this? She even calls Jesus son of David. That's messianic language. I know why you're here. You're the Messiah. What a message. And Jesus says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. The grace of God was given to this woman who the disciples would have claimed to have been totally defiled by her identity. And the woman did have a truly defiled past identity. Baal worshiper will send you to hell, participating in sexually depraved religions of the Canaanites. Rejecting God will send you to hell. Rejecting the God of Israel will send you to hell. She had a totally defiled identity. However, as she comes to Jesus, we see that Jesus has already given this woman a new identity. We see that she now has an identity of being an object of the loving mercy from the judge of the universe. We see she has a new identity as a follower of Jesus with faith in his power and his goodness. We see she has a new identity of a sinner who recklessly pursues the grace-giving one. Do you pursue Jesus this way? Recklessly pursue him. We see one who is submissive 
a submissive servant to the king. We see one who calls Jesus Lord. Paul tells the Romans, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We see her as a believer in the Messiah. She has a new identity in Christ, a sinner who receives the precious grace of God. Isn't that amazing? Your dirty hands can't stop the grace of God. Your dirty identity cannot stop the grace of God. But what about somebody who has both? What about, what can we invent someone who is so totally defiled that we can't imagine the grace of God for this person? Let's invent somebody that we say, okay, Jesus, if you say it's not us earning salvation, it's not us earning grace, let's invent someone who can't do anything to earn anything. Let's invent that person. Let's invent that person. Let's read this, if you will. Verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, <sighs> said to him, Apathitha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What about the most hopelessly defiled person we could imagine? Someone with a defiled identity who couldn't perform one single religious action. Someone who could never even hear or read the Word of God. They surely can't receive grace. This man's identity was defiled. The Decapolis is a group of ten Gentile cities. It wasn't a Jew. His DNA was defiled. He was a deaf mute. Couldn't hear. Because he can't hear. Can't learn to speak. He's a deaf mute. For Jews, a deaf mute would be categorized with the insane. Because you can't know what they're thinking. They're probably thinking very defiled thoughts. You can't know what's going on in their heads or their hearts. The Pharisees would declare this man under the curse of God. Someone who is perpetually unclean. This guy can't wash his hands. This man was so hopeless. Think about it this way. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for praising God with your lips. This man can't even do that. He couldn't commit to cleaning his hands. He couldn't recite the Shema, which every good Jew does to be right with God. He couldn't pay the temple tax. He couldn't know not to spit on the dirt during the Sabbath. He couldn't desire to convert to Judaism from his Gentile background. He couldn't even hear the word of God. Surely if there's a man totally cut off from the grace of God, it's this man. Surely if we had to earn the grace of God by our actions or our thoughts, surely this man would be totally lost without the grace of God in his life. 
And Jesus uses this opportunity and Mark uses this opportunity to make sure we know with crystal, crystal clarity that the grace of God will be poured out on whomever He chooses. Are you with me? My rules, your rules, we don't make the rules. God pours out His grace on whomever He chooses. Whomever He chooses. We are not the gatekeepers for the grace of God. And Jesus does this in such a beautiful way. He takes the poor man away from the crowd. He's not doing a spectacle for these people. He takes the poor man away from the crowd and His mercy, His grace, and compassion. Think about this. The teacher, I mean, you, you can't hear, you can't speak, you don't know really what's going on, but there's a big crowd and this guy gives you his full attention? How often has that happened his entire life? He comes and He takes him and Jesus wants this man to understand the grace of God. He wants this man to clearly understand what's happening to him. He probably doesn't know the exact reasons that everyone around him thinks that he's, that, that he's outside of the grace of God. He probably doesn't understand that, but he understands how people have treated him his whole life. Jesus wants, to know, wants this man to know exactly what's happening. So through, through sign language, he gives him the exact message. He touches his ears. Why does he do that? It's not magic. It's telling him, hey, these things that haven't worked your whole life, something's about to happen. He spits on his hand. He touches his tongue. You haven't been able to speak to anyone your whole life. Something's about to happen. He looks up to heaven. The universal sign that this is not a magic worker. That this is from God. Yes, Jesus is God, but that man can't know that. Jesus looks to heaven to show this man what's going to happen to your ears, what's going to happen to your tongue. It's coming from heaven. And he sighs deeply. <sighs> Showing the compassion that heaven has for this man. The grace heaven has for even this man. Jesus says, be opened. And the man is totally healed. Now we don't, we don't know if this man was saved. We don't know if the grace that Jesus gave this man led to his salvation. But what we see here is a crystal clear message that grace was just given to the one who could do nothing to earn it. Are you with me? If that man has shown grace, what could stop God from showing you grace? If Christ will pour grace on this helpless, hopeless man, nothing will stop Jesus from pouring grace into all who have faith in Him. In fact, what we need to recognize is that this man is us. Totally unable to earn anything spiritual from God. Totally unable to earn anything, period, from God. This helpless man is us. Believers, before we met Christ, this was who we are. Non-believers, this is who you are now. The Bible says we have defiled hands we have defiled righteousness. Isaiah 64.6 We have all become like one who is defiled. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
And yet in Jesus' grace for you, Christian, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. God the Father took your sin and put it on Jesus' back on the cross so that He becomes your righteousness. Defiled hearts, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Your heart was wicked, completely broken, completely defiled, and yet in Ezekiel he says God is taking that heart of stone out and replacing it with a heart of flesh. Why? What did you do to earn it? Nothing. Nothing. We, co- we have a defiled identity. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. Colossians 1.21 And yet, Ephesians 2 says this. You ready? We'll end it right here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. But God... What can dead men and women do? Nothing. Dead men and women can approach God like that deaf guy can, right? He can't. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show us the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, You have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. Not a result of clean hands. Not a result of clean DNA. Not a result of being able to respond to God in a positive way. Not a result of any of those. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to ask you a question. Christians, are we understanding that we are saved purely by the free gift of Jesus? Are you someone who struggles with this idea of doing good things or God is mad at you or God is out to get you now that you're a Christian, you're not living up to those standards. Is that where you are? Folks, Christian, if that's you, Jesus has given you grace when you were a sinner, when you were an enemy of God. He gave you grace. Your actions now won't stop that grace. Your inaction now won't stop that grace. You have earned the favor of God because Jesus has the favor of God and you're in Him. You didn't earn it. You can't lose it. He has given it to you freely. Rest in that good news. And Christian, the other side of this coin is, are we holding other people to standards that God does not hold them to? Do we treat other people by their actions or their opinions as if they are wrong with God because of them? 
Now, you might be able to take a quiz and say, no, that's, that's not where I'm at, and I know we say, but you might be able to take a quiz, but do we treat people that way? If you're a non-Christian today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've just been playing games, if you think you've tried to, you're a nice guy so God will accept you, hopefully you've heard it clearly from this place that none of us are right with God by our own actions. If that's you, be the woman screams and cries out for Jesus' mercy, knowing that she is a sinner and she doesn't deserve it, relying on the goodness of God. And when you do that, when you trust Him for His goodness and mercy and grace, you will find it.